So good to see you and be here with you today. Uh, go ahead and grab a Bible if you have one and open it up to Mark, excuse me, Matthew chapter 1. That's where we're going to be starting. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen uh, behind me or in the seat uh, in front of you. There should be a Bible. Can you believe it's one week and a day until Christmas? It's coming quick. Hey, well, let's, uh, let's read our passage together this morning. I'll read it for us. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. It says this, This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Let's pray. God, we are uh, grateful to be here today, gathered as your church to worship you, to sing to you, and now to have a, a few minutes together to look into your word. We pray uh, just that you would speak to us. Lord, help us to hear from you. Help us to, to learn and see whatever it is you would want us to to see this morning. God, we give you this time and pray that you would come and fill this space and we thank you again for this season especially. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, sometimes when we read the Christmas story like we just did in Matthew chapter one or we sing Christmas songs like we've been doing this morning about angels and stars and all the like, it can sound somewhat mythical or far off, or like a, a fairy tale almost. It, it doesn't sound real at times, right? It seems so removed from our everyday experience, so miraculous almost, that sometimes it's easy for us to, to write it off as, uh, you know, a nice story that Christians have believed for a long time, but not really corresponding to actual events in history. I mean, with this actually have happened, a virgin birth and angels speaking through dreams and all the like, it sounds so very odd. And so it makes us think about, okay, if this was a fairy tale, how do fairy tales or myths or stories like that usually begin? You know, they start with something like once upon a time or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Anybody seen the new Star Wars? No spoilers. I've not seen it yet, but for it's good. Or things like this. Every who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot, but the Grinch who lived just north of Whoville did not. Or try this. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Stories, fairy tales, myths, they begin with some indication that this isn't really real. These aren't real historic events. It's just talking about hobbits and Grinches and Who's and galaxies and things like that. And so we have to ask ourselves, when we come to 
The message of Christmas and the Gospels and the accounts of Jesus' life in the Bible, is that what we see? Is a similar once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away type of beginning, type of language used? Say, no, we, we don't see that at all. And you don't have to turn there, but I want to read for us the beginning of uh, the book of Luke really quickly. Luke chapter 3, when Jesus' ministry is just getting started, I want you to see how the author of Luke begins describing Jesus' ministry. It says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip was tetrarch of Idurea and Trachonitis and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. And then he goes on to explain the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And so I ask you, as you read that description, what do you notice? I mean, this is not once upon a time at all. This is not a fairy tale beginning, some type of myth. I mean, he's saying when Jesus came on the scene, here's who was ruling as Caesar, and here's who the governor was in Galilee, and his brother Philip was reigning over here, and Pilate was over here, and uh, so-and-so was the high priest. It's all grounded in, I mean, real history. These are real people, real rulers, real events that took place. So we have to realize that from the very get-go, as we think about the life of Jesus and the beginning of Jesus' life, the Christmas story, we're not talking about a myth or a fairy tale or once upon a time. We're talking about real events that actually happened. As miraculous and unique as they may seem, these are historic events. The guys that are writing scripture are saying, we're not making this up. I mean, this is what happened. And so with that in mind, we come to a passage like Matthew 1, where we read about Mary and Joseph back in the first century who are engaged to be married. When Joseph learns, the text says that Mary has become pregnant, and he knows that it's not his own doing, and so he thinks what any rational person would think, this must be from the Holy Spirit. <laughs> no. No, that's not what he thinks at all. He thinks what any one of us would think. She's, she's been unfaithful to me. She's gone around, and now she finds herself pregnant. And so he plans to divorce her quietly, not wanting to bring shame upon her, but saying clearly things are, are, are done here. And that's when we read that an angel, there's some divine intervention, comes to Joseph and says, don't worry to take her as your wife. Something divine is going on here. The Holy Spirit has come upon her. And we read in verse 21, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And then verse 22 says all of this, the whole thing with Mary and Joseph and the birth of Christ, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah from the Old Testament. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so we see that in Matthew chapter one, in the New Testament, he wants to make it very clear that these events, what's going on is actually a part of a greater legacy. It's actually fulfilling what has been spoken centuries ago in the Old Testament. And he quotes the book of Isaiah 
chapter 7, verse 14. Now, to give us a little context about what was going on back then, a king was ruling over God's people, and his name was Ahaz. And he was a little worried because two foreign kingdoms had teamed up and were going to come and basically attack the kingdom of Judah and kill Ahaz. And this would naturally stress him out and bring some worry upon him, you can imagine. But in chapter 7 there, God speaks to Ahaz and says, I don't want you to worry. Your attackers are not going to succeed and kill you. You will be protected. And then we read in verse 14, this famous verse that you've maybe seen on Christmas ornaments or on uh, coffee mugs or Christmas cards or the like. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And so God says, Ahaz, in Isaiah chapter 7, you're going to be protected, don't worry, and I want to reassure you, and so I'm going to give you a sign to indicate that I will be with you, that I will protect you. There will be a son born to a virgin, and she'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so the big point is, Ahaz, I'm going to protect you, I'm going to be with you, and this child that is born will be a sign indicating that. And so the book of Isaiah goes on and we see that God was right. Ahaz was protected and the foreign kingdoms did not conquer him. But we never quite see this promise fulfilled. We never quite see this virgin birth, this miraculous event that would result in a child named Emmanuel. And so as thoughtful readers of the Old Testament, if we were to go through the book of Isaiah, we would see, well, wait a minute. This prophecy was never quite fulfilled. And the book of Isaiah closes and the Old Testament is done. And then much later, we see Matthew chapter 1, the beginning of the New Testament. Jesus comes on the scene and the author says, this, this event with Mary and Joseph and the birth of Jesus Christ is fulfilling that promise made back in Isaiah chapter 7 that a virgin would conceive and give birth to a son and that this son would be called Emmanuel saying this is fulfilling that. Jesus is the Emmanuel. Jesus is the God with us. And so I want us to consider this morning, if that's true, if Jesus is God with us, as Matthew chapter 1 says he is, what does this mean for us? I think there are a couple things we can take away from this. And the first is it it tells us something about what God is is like. It's common today to think about God as some kind of impersonal force kind of out there in the world, you know, uh, kind of good vibes or positive energy or, or the universe out there. There's kind of a vague notion of something greater, something spiritual, almost like a cosmic batch of essential oils that just broke and got spilled kind of over everything and nothing wrong with essential oils. Respect if you're into essential oils, but you know, there's just this impersonal thing out there that kind of sends good our way kind of here and there. And so sometimes we think that that's what the God of the Bible is like, but when we come to the pages of scripture in Matthew chapter one, specifically, that's not the picture that we see at all. 
we see something very different. We see that when God wants to reveal himself to the world and wants to be with us, we don't see a vague energy. We see a person. We see Jesus. And so we see that the nature of God is is personal and relational, that this God speaks to us and he knows us and he, he hears our prayers and he enters our world and engages with us. He's relational. He comes near to us. And this, my friends, makes such a difference, being personal versus impersonal. Because think about when you have to make a call to your bank or to maybe your healthcare provider, some institution, maybe a school, and it leads you through a series of automated questions and buttons you have to press. You ever been there? Right? Option one, if billing, press one, and account information, press two, and so on. And sometimes it's never what you want it to be. Like the option you're looking for isn't one of the options. And what do you think in that moment? I just want to talk to a person. Like just give me a human being that, that can understand what I'm saying and give me what I need. And friends, I'm really not an angry person. I'm not prone to violence. But sometimes on the phone like that, I do want to strike a pedestrian with my vehicle. I mean, it just, it's challenging. And you say, I just want a person. Like, just give me someone who knows what I'm saying, who can hear and who can respond and, and help me in my situation. And so we see that when we think about God, God did not leave the world with some automated answering machine process to go through that hopefully will lead us to the right outcome. We see that God came to us as a person and engages with us relationally and listens and who knows you and loves you. That's the thing about an impersonal force like in Star Wars. The force can't love anyone. The force is just energy out there or something. But God, a personal God, loves and engages in relationships. So if Jesus is Emmanuel, it tells us something about the nature of God. And also, if this is true, then it tells us something about Jesus, that he was not just any other historical figure. Again, sometimes we think, well, Jesus, he's just a good guy, you know, said a lot of good things about love, loving your neighbor, and we should kind of, you know, follow his teachings, but let's not get too carried away. But we see that if Jesus is God... That has profound implications for our lives. We see this throughout the Bible. The book of John, chapter 1, begins this way. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And when it's using the word Word, it's talking about Jesus, saying Jesus was in the beginning, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. And then verse 14 of John chapter 1 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this Jesus was in the beginning. This Jesus was God. And now he came in the flesh and dwelt among us and moved into the neighborhood, so to speak. We see the same thing taught in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. It says, This Jesus who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature 
of a servant and being made in human likeness. So again, this Jesus, within the very form of God and the very nature of God, did not cling to that, hold on to that, hold on to his right to be treated as God. Rather, he emptied himself and he came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is the great doctrine of the incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas. God incarnate, God in the flesh, God come to us, God in a bod, if you will. I mean, that is essentially what we're getting at, that Jesus is God himself come to us. Which means when we look at Jesus, we see God, and when we read the words of Jesus, we read the words of God, and when we see the actions of Jesus, we see the actions of God. And Jesus claims that this is true, that he was not just a good teacher. The Bible claims that this is true. He's much more than that. And so we have to consider, is, is the Bible right on that or not? I mean, famous Christian author C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing that it cannot be is moderately important. And he says, if, if, if Jesus is not God with us, if this isn't real, if none of this is real, it's just a story, it's just made up, then we're, we're all wasting our time here. It's of no importance. We should just go grab lunch early. But if it's true, and Christianity is real, and Jesus really is God with us, then it has infinite importance and implications for every single one of us. It just can't be this middle ground where it's like, eh, take it or leave it. it, works for you, doesn't work for me. That's not an option that Jesus gives us. Either he's God and, and commands our, our lives and our obedience, or he's not. So we have to consider, is this true? And if Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, this means something significant about how we connect with God. I'm going to stay with me here on this for a little bit. This is really central to our faith. Um, I don't know about you, but life can be really exhausting, really overwhelming, really scary and terrifying in different ways. Global activist and author Lynn Twist put it this way. I don't believe she's a Christian. She said, for me and for many of us, our first waking thought of the day is, I didn't get enough sleep. That was me this morning. The next one is, I don't have enough time. She said, we spend most of the hours and days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining, or worrying about what we don't have enough of. Before we even sit up in bed, before our feet touch the floor, we're already losing. We're already lacking something. By the time we go to bed at night, our minds are racing with a litany of what we didn't get or didn't get done that day. I think we can relate with that. Never quite having enough, never quite being able to get ahead. She goes on to say we're not good enough or thin enough or powerful enough or successful enough. We're not smart enough or certain enough or safe enough or extraordinary enough or clever enough or you fill in the blank, not blank enough. I think it's the reality of the human experience. We feel those things. And so it seems challenging then when so many of 
the messages that we hear as to how to fix that and how to be happy and live a fulfilled life, whether it's from a spiritual source or otherwise, world religions or spiritualities or whatever else, it, it goes from the bottom up. Where there's this, this ladder we have to climb, where we're already exhausted, fatigued, overwhelmed people, and it says, well, there's this God or this spiritual state of existence or a place of mind that you need to reach. And you got to get there. And so better get to work or start behaving or obey or figure it out. And hopefully you'll climb that ladder and reach that state of happiness or joy or fulfillment or God or heaven or whatever it is. And so you work and try and do it. I mean, I was even I was reading a book by uh, the Dalai Lama recently, this, this famous Buddhist teacher. And there were uh, some overlaps between what he was saying and what Christianity and the Bible teaches, but there was some significant differences. Because essentially, if I were to boil down what he was communicating about joy and happiness, it was, well, here's, here's a to-do list. You know, like, go and serve other people and care for other people and feed the poor and go and do these things. Climb this ladder and you'll reach this kind of spiritual state. You know, it's really a bottom-up, climb-the-ladder approach. And because of that, we're so used to hearing that message from everywhere. When we come to Christianity, we think that it's just more of the same, right? It's just another way to climb the ladder. It's just another approach, you know? It's just more advice, right? But it's just advice from the Bible this time. And so it's be a good person or make it to heaven and work your way and you'll get there. But I want us to see from Scripture that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the exact opposite of that approach. The message of Christianity is not just more advice, not just climb the ladder, get to work, do more. The message of the gospel is not good advice, it's good news, good news about what God has done. It's not climb the ladder, it's that God came down the ladder to you. We couldn't make it up there, so he came down in the person of Jesus Christ. He didn't look at his world and say, you guys, clean up your act, figure it out, get to work, then maybe I'll love you, then maybe we'll have a relationship. No, he said, I'm going to come down and meet you where you are. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to find you and rescue you. And that's what we see in the incarnation, in the person of Jesus Christ, God with us. It's the complete opposite approach. And so Matthew clearly one declares that this Jesus is Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's the one that Isaiah 7 pointed us forward to. And there's one more piece of this passage I want us to see before we wrap up, and that's what we read in verse 21. It says, She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And so we see in these short verses, not only who Jesus is, but what he came to do. It says he came to save. And the name Jesus in Hebrew literally means God saves. He came to save his people from their sins. And I think, again, we can look at the world as it is today and see that it needs 
some serious intervention. It needs some serious saving. And I feel like I say this almost every week. I mean, you don't, you don't have to be a Christian to, to see that, you know, to, to notice that something out there is wrong. Like, it's just, things aren't the way they should be. We see almost every week a new example of shootings or violence. We see racism and injustice. We see sexual abuse and domestic violence and the oppression of different people groups and people abusing their power. And we see selfishness and greed. And I mean, we could go on and on. We see this out there in the world. We see how it's impacted our lives and our families for many of us. Things aren't as they should be. And so as a Christian, for Christians, we can look at the scriptures and say, well, yeah, I mean, this is the result of of a world that has turned from God, a world that has chosen to live our own way and doesn't want to worship God or follow his ways. To me, it just doesn't add up as we look at the state of our world to say that, you know, well, people are mostly good people and there's a few bad apples out there. I mean, when you look at the sheer amount of problems and, and evil in our world, there's something much deeper going on than just a few bad apples. And Scripture teaches that sin runs through each of us. We all have a sin problem. It's not just people out there. The great uh, theological journal Reader's Digest once uh, posted this story about this woman. I love this story so much, you guys. I'm, it's ever since I, okay. So, posted this woman. She's uh, traveling on a plane. Okay, there's this woman going on a flight and she uh, gets on the plane and settles down on her seat and next to her, there's a, no one in the aisle, but on the window seat, there's this man that she doesn't know. It's a single guy and he's a little older and he doesn't speak any English. Um, and she has this package of, of Oreo cookies that's been placed on the middle seat in between them, okay? And those delicious, famous, milk's favorite cookie, Oreo cookies. She purchased them before the flight and was ready for a snack. And so as she was getting ready, getting a little bit hungry and wanted to open up those cookies, the man reaches over, grabs the cookies, opens the cookies, reaches in, takes a cookie, and eats one of her Oreo cookies. And she thought, this guy can't be serious. What just happened? And so she, wanting to assert her rightful place as the owner of the cookies, looks at him indignantly and reaches in and takes two cookies. Says, these are my, she doesn't say this, but she's thinking, these, what is this guy doing? These are my cookies. She eats them. And the guy just gives her a big smile then reaches over and takes another cookie. She's about to lose her mind. And so she reaches in and takes another cookie. And this goes back and forth until there's only one cookie left. And surely this man wouldn't be so bold to take the last cookie that didn't even belong to him. But he reaches in, a big smile on his face, takes that last cookie, he breaks it in half and gives it to her, and he takes the other half. But still, this woman is thinking, okay, that's a nice gesture, but you're eating my Oreos. This is not okay. And she's like, what 
is this is not normal human interaction, right? This is crazy. This doesn't happen. And so she's like, what is going on? So she gets off the plane as it ends, the plane lands and she's leaving and she, she looks in her purse as she's leaving the airport and she sees in there her unopened package of Oreo cookies that she purchased. I know. And so this whole time, she thinks that this man is eating her cookies, strong-arming her with a big smile, taking her cookies, when all along, she was the one who was eating his cookies while hers were intact in her purse, and she didn't realize it. I thought, wow, we, we are so often like this woman, where we think that the problem is over there, is what other people are doing. They're the issue. Those people, whoever that might be for you, people that are different than you, whatever it might be, they're the problem. When the reality is, we each have a sin issue that we need to deal with. And God points the finger at us and says, what about you? What about you? Sin is not just out there. Someone else is doing. It lies within each of us. You see, the Bible teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's standards. We've all turned from God and rejected God and wanting to do things our own way. And we have pride and lust and greed and selfishness. And you go on and on. But this sin has consequences, not just like the cookie story where we kind of laugh it off. I mean, because of our sin, we have separated ourselves from God. We've turned from him. We've brought judgment and death upon ourselves and upon our world. And one day we'll stand before this God, this holy, perfect judge, and we'll have to give an account for our lives. And so in light of all of this, we read verse 21 and realize why it's such good news, that Jesus came to save his people. Verse 21, she'll give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to save us. It's at Christmas time we remember in the birth of Christ, we have in mind the end of his life, where his life will end in the cross. In death, he came to give his life, to take the sin and and shame and, and guilt of our world, of every one of us upon himself and die on a cross, taking the penalty of sin so that we, if we would simply believe in him, would be forgiven. He would die so we would have life. He would be condemned so that we would be freed and forgiven and welcomed back into the household of God as a loved son or daughter. I mean, this is the heart of the gospel, that we're not saved through anything that we do, but we're saved because of what Jesus has done. And you see how this leads us to a place of such humility? And when we put our faith in Christ, we're acknowledging our brokenness and our need. We're acknowledging what we already know to be true about ourselves. We know that we don't earn salvation. We don't deserve heaven. But God gives it to us as a gift if we would believe in the work of Jesus. 
And then in that place, when we are radically loved and welcomed by God, we're sent out into the world as his people to love other people, to serve our world, to live and give our lives for the good of others. Because once we are loved and belong to the Lord, we can then go and love others freely with great joy, being willing to sacrifice for the good of our world. Notice lastly that in verse 21, it says this Emmanuel, this Jesus will save his people from their sins, which naturally leads us to wonder who, who does that include? Who are his people? How does one become his people? Because it sounds like a pretty good thing that I might want to be a part of. Romans 10, 13 says, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We see throughout scripture this, anyone who believes, whoever has faith, whoever trusts in this Jesus, the bar is extremely low. Anyone qualifies if they would simply have faith and respond to this Jesus and say, yes, Lord. And so this is what we celebrate at Christmas, that Jesus has fulfilled the promise of Isaiah 7 to be Emmanuel, God with us, and he has saved us from our sins. This is what we sing about. This is what we're going to celebrate together for the next week and a day and into the next year. So let's pray together. God, we are so grateful for uh, these truths that we've considered today from your word. Jesus, we thank you for coming to us. God, we know that we could not climb the ladder to you, so thank you that you came down and walked among us and you saved us and have forgiven us of our sins. We're so grateful to know you. We're truly humbled and grateful for all that you've done. Thank you, Lord. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to, we have one more song we're going to close with this morning. We're going to sing, Oh, Come All You Faithful. But we're going a little off script here. So Pastor Matt, I know you had something else you